there's not one answer for anything. Not, no system is op- optimized with one solution. You know, also, we know about the paradox of choice. It's also not optimized with 12 different options. That's the voice of Leanne Davey, Toronto-based team effectiveness consultant and New York Times best-selling author. Her recent publication, The Good Fight, explores how to have healthy conflict, which is needed so that teams can fully engage and give their best to an organization. And I don't know about you, but the conflict around the nine to five return to office has been a real good fight. In our conversation today, we are going to dig into this hybrid work dilemma. In Canada, we've been at this return to office hybrid teaming business for long enough. It's been well over a year since we've had permission to return to office and this rumble began. It's clear that there is not one solution to optimize any one team or business. And we've been iterating and experimenting for far too long. I think leaders and teams are just getting a little bit tired of the topic and hoping to settle into something new. Leanne and I get into the heart of the matter of what exactly has been challenging us around this nine to five return to office and getting people to leave those cozy, comfy nests, which feel oh so good. I'm not going to lie. Loving the home office and return to teaming in a hybrid environment. Leanne and I explore what this tension is all about. We're going to hear the viewpoints of some of our nine to fivers and innovators, and we're going to explore ways to engage in this conflict and think through a healthy future for teaming in hybrid work environments. My name is Sarah Plankert, and you are listening to Iterations, the podcast. We talk to the brave, unconventional Canadian leaders and innovators who are making it their business to reinvent or shall we say iterate, the way we work. Let's make change together, because we can absolutely rebuild these systems and structures that humans invented in the first place. I'm sad and disappointed how often people haven't been willing to come back to, okay, we we let you prioritize yourself and your family and, and all those sorts of things. Um, but now we have to think about you're a member of a team. How are you contributing to that? You're a member of an organization and a culture. How are you contributing to that? You live in a town or a city. How are you contributing to that? So uh, I wish we had made more progress on understanding that my only job is not producing tasks that are on my smart objective list. But I also have an obligation to contribute to the team that I'm a part of, which is sometimes just being there beside the new person and being able to let them know how to use the budget software or um, it's, you know, overhearing something in the kitchenette and being able to say, oh, I actually I know that talk to so and so. And so I'm a little disappointed that we're so comfortable and cozy in our nests that we've created in our homes for the last three years that we're not giving as much to our teams and our communities as as I think we need to. And I think if we let that go on too long, we'll end up with the teams and the communities we deserve, which is unhealthy, hollowed out versions of of what we used to have. Unhealthy, hollowed out versions of what we used to have. That does not sound nice. I'm going to share a personal story here. I was hired in a remote environment during the pandemic, nine to fiver. And when we were given the option to return to office, I'm not going to lie. It was pretty scary. I didn't want it. That's for sure. 
And as we continued to work virtually, because most of my team members decided that they wanted to stay at home too, we all found ourselves in that same cadence, lots of written communication. Oh, the chat messages. Oh, the emails. And anytime you wanted to ask for help or get support or collaborate, it was all this work to schedule a meeting way down the line in those heavy jammed packed calendars. Eventually, I learned that whole experience drained my soul a little, maybe a lot. And the repercussions on an individual level and on a team level became more apparent over time. I'm going to hunch even at an organizational level. And while those comfy nests that we create for ourselves can be so awesome, I love the focus that I get in my home office. I love the convenience of being next to my laundry machine so I can get a little home chores done while I'm working. Loneliness, disconnection, stress, and burnout have been on the rise. And it has a repercussion on us as individuals and as a society. Yeah, I think it really does. And I'm not sure we've had the reckoning with that yet. You know, it's been interesting. Uh, I have a 21-year-old and a 17-year-old. And, you know, they were in grade 8 and grade 12 when COVID hit. And watching the profound effect on them and on their friends, the social anxiety that has grown, the challenge in getting back to interacting in person with other people, it really, really, really set them back. But because they had to go back to school, they're figuring it out. They're kind of ahead of us as adults. But many of us as adults have not figured out that being in our own homes all the time, only interacting with a very small group of people. So the research suggests that the average person interacts with about 11 what they call weak ties in a day when they go out to the office. So that's the bus driver or the barista or the security guard at, at reception. And those are important connections in our lives. It's not only strong ties, like you may be saying, well, I, I have my team's calls and I, you know, I'm connected to my six other colleagues, but we don't realize that it's more than that that creates the social fabric of our lives. And the isolation that we feel when we are only connecting with people online, it's only a very restricted set of people. I think it's having more profound effects than we know. And I think the challenge with any of these things is we don't know what it's going to cost us yet and, and what kind of a historians will look back on the ramifications of all these things and we'll learn a lot when they do. Yeah. So we've been thrust into this social experiment. At the beginning of all this, we really had no choice, us nine to five knowledge workers. We were at home on video calls in an instant and we were stumbling through it and figuring it out. I don't think we liked it very much back then. And now that we're given the option to be back in person, the diversity of preference and the paradox of choice has us a little, well, stuck. People don't need the same things out of their job anymore. They want work-life balance. They've experienced how to achieve that during COVID. You know, the leaders are saying, we need to come back to this. And then the employees are like, why? You don't trust us? Maybe it's like the millennial in me saying this because my dad and, you know, people from different generations don't share my same view and sentiment that you don't need to be looking over someone's shoulder or seeing somebody to know that work's being done. I prefer hybrid work because it allows the flexibility, uh, which I require as a human being, but it also allows myself to be downtown and, you know, get out of my house and 
allow myself to be part of the larger system as a whole. A lot of people are feeling that freedom and flexibility that they've had over the past couple of years, and it now feels like it's being taken away from them. But I think the need for empathy is to continue to reinforce, like, we're still a team and we need to both acknowledge all the different ways that we learn and work and what each of us needs and what even our roles are. And at the same time, make sure that we don't become hyper individualized. So how is empathy going to help us through this? What role does empathy play in the dialogue and discussions we're having? I'm trying to get managers to be more empathetic about how big of an ask it is to ask people to return to the office. If you think about the way it used to be when you had to be in the office full time, if somebody needed support, if they needed to be taken to a doctor's appointment, You know, you took the day off to take your kid to the pediatrician and you took a vacation day to do that. I don't know about you, but being in a pediatrician's waiting room with snotty, infectious kids is not how I want to spend my vacation day. So one very obvious thing is we've lost the flexibility when we go back into the office to, you know, kind of take the hour, go to the doctor, tack on an hour at the end of the day and and be fine. That's one. Data are suggesting now the average cost of adding a commute is about $7,000 a year. That's half of a food budget for a family of four in Canada. So in a time when people's mortgages are going up precipitously, when inflation is making their grocery bills very high, you're saying relative to last year, we need you to also spend $7,000 more commuting. That's a big ask. Uh, We know that people who are neurodiverse have been able to create environments that allow them to focus and be productive. And we're asking them to come back to big open offices, you know, environments that are not conducive to them. For people who are visible minorities, we are asking them to come back to the microaggressions that they had been able to go without, at least in the workplace for a while. So, you know, it is a big ask. Uh, I think it's an ask we should be making. I think people should be in the office, maybe on average, about three days a week. But I don't want managers asking that without fully appreciating how big of an ask it really is. There are certainly a few or many sides to this story. And with so many viewpoints and preferences on how to handle this return to office hybrid teaming situation, we must be aware that we're in the middle of conflict, right? I don't see very many constructive conversations about it. So conflict to me, I always think of it as like an action, as a verb, like we are engaging in a conversation where we have different perspectives in search of a solution. Uh, I see more sitting in our two different corners complaining about the other. Uh, I see lots of leaders who are like, they just need to come back. Like we pay them, it's their job. They need to come back, but not much empathizing, not much flexing, not much what would help make that a more positive, viable experience. None of that. And I don't see a lot of individuals being willing to come out of their comfy, cozy spot to say, "Okay, I get why as an employer, you need me to be contributing not just to my own set of tasks, but also being a part of a vibrant community at work being there to overhear things, see people who are struggling, help them out, contribute in other ways. So I don't think there's a lot of positive conflict going on, at least not in the active sense of the term conflict. 
there's a lot of resentment. There's a lot of griping, but there's not a lot of coming together to say, okay, how do we make this work? It's, I also see leaders kind of sitting in their offices deciding this shall be the proclamation about what we're going to do. And not a lot of folks, you know, together talking about okay, what's important to you and what are the things that if we could protect and preserve a few things, what would you want them to be? And, you know, if there are places where you are willing to change and do something different and, you know, what, what would those things be? We're not seeing a lot of dialogue. Okay, so we're not seeing a lot of dialogue. I guess that's a sign that we're not really engaging in the conflict. And when it is happening, when we are having dialogue, I imagine it's so uncomfortable and unclear that we tend to retreat. And it's also about like, where is the dialogue happening? Is it happening behind closed doors in a boardroom? Is it happening with a team? Who's the decision maker? And how is it happening? Is it happening in a time crunched meeting through a survey or in an open, honest conversation? For those of us, which I imagine is most of us who have attempted to engage with dialogue to pull out from conversations, information and data to make a decision, I think there's one common theme that seems to be emerging. There's not one clear answer. So we don't really know what to do. Well, when we don't like uncomfortable conversations, we want to just have one answer that we dictate for everyone. But uh, I was really pleased to see somebody having a conversation recently, one of my clients, and they said, you know, for those who come in uh, three or more days a week, they'll have their own desk. If you only come in one or two days a week, then you won't. You'll have to hotel. And one of the things we know is people really like to have their own space. And I thought that was so logical. It's like, yes, you know, there are options where you can work remotely two days a week or work in, in office two days a week. But if you take those options, the consequence of that will be that you're not going to have your own desk. Because why would we pay to have a desk empty three days a week? It doesn't make any sense. So uh, I thought that was beautiful. So I love the idea that we can come up with different answers. But in people who don't like conflict, who don't like discomfort, they tend to prefer, I'm going to make this call black and white, one decision and dictate it, as opposed to, yeah, what makes sense for your role, for the business? for And, and we're not afraid of having conversations that have something be different but equitable for people in different situations. So with this organization or leader who was able to give some choice and option and clarity there, what what was the dialogue or how did they come to that place? Did they rumble through some conflict? Did they gather information through dialogue? What do you know about how they yeah, got they, there? They, there was just lots of dialogue, right? What do people want? Which and And so we went around the table with each of the members of the executive team talking about, you know, what does your team do and, and how to, so the, the, CFO was saying, look, my folks are constantly needing to answer questions. Their job isn't very scheduled. They need to be around for, you know, helping folks with things. It really makes sense for them to be in the office three or four days a week. So there's lots of time for interaction. Whereas other folks were saying, look, my folks are dealing with people who are remote all the time or they're coding or they're doing this or that. It doesn't really make sense for them. They don't do much of any cross team interaction. So it doesn't really make sense. So I love that, that they talked about started from the business rationale of the, the teams and the roles and, and figured out what was fit for purpose from there. Fit for purpose. Love that concept that just digs into the need of the business and how the teams can support it and in what format. But what about those individual preferences, those team preferences? How do they fit into this decision-making process? 
I think the challenge in a lot of these return to office conversations is there is a difference between team effectiveness and individual effectiveness. So you you have to make both calls at the same time. So as soon as someone decides that they're individually more productive or happier when they're working remotely, you've, you've therefore signed up your whole team to work virtually. So as soon as some people are not physically present, everyone has to be communicating through virtual means, digital, much more written communication. So you've kind of signed other people up for your <laughs> for your preference. So I think what teams need to be thinking about is what's the nature of our work? And I think that's why a mix of both in-office and remote days is going to be where we end up because we have work that really is better suited to remote. So our, our home setups usually have fewer distractions. They're great for getting into flow, for being more productive. Uh, they're great, obviously, for flexibility for people. So there's a lot that's great about having some flexibility to work remotely. And then there's a lot that's important and valuable about being physically together so that we can have communication that's much richer with body language and everything we've been missing so that we have more spontaneous collisions. So I think it's a matter of figuring out what does our team need? What does our business need from us? Um, Use the business needs to set the non-negotiables of this is how many days a week we want people in, or this is how we want people participating. Then after that, leave as much flexibility as possible for individuals to say, look, I'm, I'm, you know, I have, uh, I'm, I'm neurodiverse. I can create an environment that's better for my own focus. If I can be at home more frequently, great. I'm dealing with some family issues. I have young kids. It would be easier if I can you know, work remotely, or I'm going to come into the office, but I'd like to come into the office uh, and, and like move my timing a little bit. Can I come in a little later or whatever else? So I think starting from the business non-negotiables of what needs to happen. And then other than that, having as much flexibility for individuals as possible. Sounds nice and easy, right? A little formula for success right there. Figuring out what's fit for purpose, flexing and adapting to individual needs, But when you're a leader who's dialoguing and gathering insights and you're learning all those individual preferences, aren't you opening yourself up to upset somebody down the line? So how does a leader go about crafting a solution? What is the journey towards making that call about how your team's going to work from here? One of the things I've been telling leaders is not to be tentative or shy in making that decision, because what I've seen is leaders who are clear and confident in the decision they've made um, get less pushback, signal that, you know, this is where we're going and can move on more quickly than leaders who project that they're sheepish about that decision, they're uncomfortable with it, they're worried people won't like them. If you leave that, if you signal that and telegraph that with your body language or your tone or anything else, you know, people are going to challenge it. So I think one of the most important things for leaders is you do want to make that call and it is your job to make that call. Um, And just make sure that you're making that call based on what the business requires. I, I think I've heard lots of leaders who are are imposing something that they like 
or they think is effective, um, instead of having uh, a really effective case and argument for why these are the kinds of things we need to be able to do to be effective as a team, to innovate, to be customer-centric, to uh, coordinate, and and therefore this is the decision. So don't be tentative about it. It, it is your call. Um, get the input. Uh, understand that nobody's going to be happy with whatever you do, but you can guarantee they're not going to be happy if you hedge and and show them that there's uh, that there's room to continue to push. So the leader makes the call. That makes sense, right? <laughs> Sometimes the organization makes the call, I'm sure. But at the end of the day, the leader is really making a call for their team in some way. And most of the time, we're seeing some sort of hybrid. Sometimes it might be remote. I definitely don't think anyone's going in person in an office all day, every day at this point. There's still a whole bunch of newness to this when we get there. How do teams be teams in a hybrid environment? How do we shape out our work to suit this hybrid model? The biggest thing, which is pretty near term and seems doable, is that we start to reshape our weeks to be more deliberate about what we're doing where. So right now, you know, it's just you have to be in certain days and we come in and you come into the office and sit on video calls all day. That is not <laughs> that's not defensible. Right. It's really hard to tell someone to, you know, do their two hour commute um, if they're just going to come in and be on video calls all day. So what I hope is that um, we'll get to a point where we really clearly differentiate between days that are about production, which are days where, you know, you turn off your email for two hours at a stretch, you get into flow, you have very, very, very few meetings, that we then have days that are about collaboration, exploration, and those are, you know, days in the office, days where there isn't an expectation that you are producing a lot, but it's an expectation that you're anticipating and envisioning and connecting and those sorts of things, um, that we start to you know, use our time more efficiently and effectively. The other thing is Microsoft data suggests that uh, the average person has 225% more meetings now than they had um, before the pandemic. Oy. So I hope we go back and reset uh, on meetings so that we can go back to the uh, the good old fashioned version of, you know, perching your right butt cheek on someone's desk and spending five <laughs> minutes asking them a question. Instead, that's turned into 30 minutes in a meeting that we have to schedule three days from now. So uh, I think that's another piece that needs to be a part of the puzzle. Oh, yeah, that's something I miss. The cadence of in-person is just so yes. different. Yeah. just So there's a really cool technique called communication bursts. And this aims to recreate the right butt cheek on the desk um, virtually. <laughs> so essentially what you do is you create a, a chunk of time. It can be a couple of hours. And um, everybody is working during that time, but no one has any meetings. So the idea would be that you can ping someone during that time and say, do you have five minutes? I just want to talk this through. Or, you know, I sent you an email a couple of days ago. Could you, could you take a quick peek at it? So we have a time. So in a world that's become very asynchronous as we're in virtual and hybrid, it creates a synchronous moment, even though we're not together. So communication burst seems to be, you know, a good way of recreating the, I'm just going to pop over to your desk um, without, you know, having to be physically together. 
Oh, the spontaneity behind that gets a little, my heart open a little bit more because yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. that like yeah. all the energy wasted in trying to find a meeting time is a real thing. <laughs> it's very painful. So if you just yeah. have those spots on your team's calendar, so nice. everybody, they're sort of standing things and everybody knows that's the time where we're, we're individually working. Um, but, uh, it's the time where we all know that, you know, we might need to help somebody else out. We can have a quick huddle on something, those sorts of things. Some people even like to have the zoom call open the whole time and you just mute it and you're like, okay, I'm just going to work away here, but just unmute if, if you need me for anything, it's just as if you were sitting at desks beside one another working away. So technology can, can help us accomplish some of these things if we're willing to be a little creative. Leaders don't have it easy in these complex times, and this iterative process towards hybrid work has certainly been a bit of a drain. So thanks, Leanne Davey, for shedding some light and exploring these concepts to help us move closer towards crafting healthy and productive hybrid team environments. Let's challenge the nine to five, because we can absolutely rebuild these systems and structures that humans invented in the first place. To stay current with the topics that Canadian leaders and innovators are iterating in the world of work, follow and rate this show wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to engage in dialogue? Follow us on LinkedIn or check out our website, iterationspodcast.com. Thanks for tuning in.